coming Wednesday night, worship uh, during the month of August, but uh, we're finishing chapter 8 today. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand, and our ushers will be glad to get you a Bible. We're picking up um, with Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. And I'll begin reading in verse 40. So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all of her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, and she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Teacher, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble. To the ruler of the synagogue, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered and saying, do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except for Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called her, saying, little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Father, we ask again for your Holy Spirit here this morning, so present in the worship, present in prayer, and now we ask, present in the manifestation and teaching of your word, may our hearts not only hear, but believe and apply that which you speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know how many, how many of you have been to New York City? You know, when you go down to New York Harbor, you see there's this tall statue, the Statue of Liberty, if you're coming into New York Harbor, and you're all familiar with some of the words that are on the Statue of Liberty. Give me your poor, you're tired, you're poor, you're huddled masses, yearning to be free. And you see that, it is a glorious thing. You know, the first time you've ever been to New York and you, you want to get down to Battery Park and at least see it from a distance, because I've never gone out there, but I've seen it from, uh, from the edge of the harbor a few times and flown in right over it numerous times. But when Jesus, you know, these are people that are coming and they know those words, tired, poor, yearning to be free. But Jesus as we saw last week when he sailed over to Gadara, and here he is again sailing back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus, he does the opposite. He actually sails in, and he doesn't carry a torch. 
He is the torch, isn't he? He is the light. And he's not saying, come uh, poor, tired, although he does say that. He says even beyond that, because he does come to heal the brokenhearted, he says, come and give me problems that are impossible for anyone to solve. Give me anything. The death of a daughter, health issues, financial issues. There's nothing, and it's not just, hey, you'll have a place to set up shop and you know, earn money and be free like the United States offers to so many. But he says, I'll go well beyond that. I'll actually do what you could never do, ever, no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work. If you're taking notes this morning, there is one other aspect, though, that Jesus is going to ask of us. We're gonna ha- he's going to come to us because we actually didn't even seek him for salvation. He sought us first, Amen. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. But not only did he come to us, but we still also had to come to him, didn't we? Still do. And we had to come by faith, and we had to believe. We had to believe his words. We had to believe what he says to us. It's not always easy because some of the things that he says to us are hard. They're difficult. But if we trust him, if we believe him, we'll see him do things in our lives that we could never possibly do on our own. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, When Someone Believes. When Someone Believes. It's interesting that Jesus, when, when he's walking through that crowd, he said, somebody touched me. Somebody. When someone believes. And we'll look at three things as is my practice from the text this morning. Personal pain, personal faith, and personal joy. Personal pain, personal faith, and personal joy. We're all going to go through personal things. We all have personal pain. We all are going to have to have our own personal faith. Although it's nice that someone else has faith for us and praying for us, we will still have to have personal faith. And don't we all want our own personal joy? Yeah, we want others to be joyful, but we also desire to have joy ourselves. All three of these things we'll look at here this morning. Starting with this personal pain, if you're taking notes, starting in the first few verses here, in the last seven, these 17 verses, verses 40 through 56 here, these 17 verses uh, of chapter 8, they actually tell us of two painful situations that are unfolding simultaneously. They're unfolding at the same time, yet both will see the miraculous touch of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad that Jesus is able to handle multiple crises at the same time. Aren't you? I have a limit. I can handle a few things at the same time, but after that I'm overwhelmed. Jesus can handle every crisis on earth at the same time and isn't even the least bit stretched. Isn't that amazing? All at the same time. He focuses on two here. But by no means is that all he could do or was aware of or even was doing. Uh, John tells us that all the things that Jesus did, if they recorded all the books of the world, couldn't contain it. Gives you an idea of what he was doing. But we see here a desperate, first that we have this desperate and frightened man. Uh, We'd all be frightened if our child was dying. Fearful. Could the thing that we 
hoped would never happen, happen. A frightened man. And we also have a desperate woman. She's now destitute and she is greatly discouraged. Two individuals here, both experiencing deep and personal pain. But there are contrasts even among the two of them. One is a religious leader. He held a position of rank. He held a position of responsibility. He held a position of respect in the community. But all that's irrelevant to him at this point because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. You know, when you have something like that happen, all the accolades don't mean much, do they? What's in the bank account doesn't mean that much at that moment, does it? Well, the kind of car you're driving at that time doesn't mean a whole lot when your 12-year-old girl is dying. Things have a way of coming into focus what really, really matters. The other, she's a nondescript woman who is now a social outcast. Her life is in complete shambles. She spent all of her money on her physical condition. Every procedure, every prescribed solution or cure has been a complete failure. She's no better off. She still has this flow of blood, and she spent every dime with physicians trying to find someone to cure it. Now, Luke, you'll recall, he's a physician himself. He records more of the physical ailments of people and Jesus healing them than any of the other gospel writers. Luke is very focused on people being physically healed. He's a doctor, and he's aware of what it costs for these procedures because he was a doctor. By the way, um, the cost and limitations of health care are not new, folks. It's always been a problem. It's always going to be a problem. Because we live, what, in a sin-fallen world. Medical science has its limitations. And just when we think we figured it out, something like Ebola explodes. When we figure that one out, something else will come along. We live in a fallen world that needs the touch of Jesus himself. Amen? Jesus, though, he would systematically, as he comes back over the Sea of Galilee, remember he was at the, with the man of Gadara, did a miraculous thing, casting out uh, a legion of demons from that man. He comes back here. If you are here with us last week, we went over that. But he comes back, and Jesus, he actually would systematically go through the cities of Galilee. He would continue to retravel through them to the point that some people had a general knowledge or maybe even a specific knowledge of when he was coming back to their village because he started to do that so often. And it's pretty likely that this individual, this ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, and this woman, that they were aware of his coming. It says the throngs, the multitude were there waiting for him. They were obviously aware of his coming. But the contrast between these two, both waiting, both needing, both looking for his coming back to their area, the contrast between the two is striking. We have this man of high esteem, and we have this woman of no esteem. Jesus cares about the highest on the ladder. Yes, he cares about Warren Buffett. And he also cares about the person who no one in the world knows about or even cares about. Highest and lowest, not willing that any should perish, but all that should come, all should come to repentance. Jairus, or Jairus, he was a ruler of the synagogue, a religious leader. This woman, though, because of her continuous flow of blood, 
she was considered, according to the Old Testament, she was ceremonially unclean. She was unable to enter the synagogue. Remember, he's the ruler in the synagogue, a rabbi, leader, teacher in the synagogue, but she's unable to even enter the synagogue because she's ceremonially unclean. She couldn't enter the temple in Jerusalem. She wanted to travel down for Passover. She could not go into the temple grounds. She was unclean. She would have been shunned by all of the Jewish community, including her very own family, because if anyone touched her, they would become unclean. They would have a period of time that they would have to wait before they could participate again in anything that was of the Jewish feast or festivals or the synagogue or anything else. They would have a period of time where they would be unclean, so no one would come anywhere near, much like lepers. And Jairus, we have yet another leader here, Bowing and pleading to Jesus for help. Remember back in chapter 7 with the Roman centurion, we had a similar situation, a similar uh, time of desperation for that man, the Roman centurion. Uh, Back in chapter 7, he ruled Roman soldiers. And if you recall, the centurion actually had built the synagogue in Capernaum. But both Jairus and the woman even though they might have a different standing in society, even though people look at them differently, not Jesus. They're equals to him. He looks at them the same. He looks at them as two people that are helpless without his help. You and I might look up to some people or, you know, uh, it was tragic this past week that uh, Robin Williams committed suicide. He's on the cover of every magazine. Very tragic. It's sad to all of us that someone would take their own lives. But you know what? Jesus cares about some little child that just died in Iraq just as much that no one is putting on Entertainment Tonight or CBS Evening News or anything else. All are equal to the Lord. He doesn't want to see any die, but he also cares about all and the needs of all. They're both equally helpless, and really we're all equally helpless, aren't we? All of us. We're in the same boat. We can't really help ourselves. There's a million things that God could allow that we couldn't do anything to stop. Their pain and their trials, they surface at different times. This woman's been dealing this for 12, she's dealing with her issue for 12 years. The issue surfaced at different times. The little girl who's sick, this is something that's probably come on rather suddenly. And she went from healthy to dying in a rather short period of time. But what I find interesting, though, is that there's this 12-year convergence. The little girl is 12 years old. The woman's been dealing with the blood for 12 years. Just kind of tells us that God sees the exact right time where he wants Jesus to step in at the intersection of both of their lives. He was coming for such a time as that very moment. I don't know what's going on in your life, but Jesus is ready for that very moment that you need. Some pain and difficulty in life comes very suddenly, doesn't it? One day everything's almost perfect and smooth sailing. And then an unexpected situation that can bring us to a grieving 
or feeling helpless. I saw just this week a story like that. I don't know if some of you might have saw it in the news. Um, I grew up in the 80s where we tried to get way more sun than our skin was supposed to get. I was in high school in the 80s where we did really dumb things like putting oil all over us. And we actually thought the darker we got, the better we looked and everything else. Those of you that have more melanin in the skin, I was always jealous of you. But, you know, we grew up doing that. And uh, sad story this week, a, a girl in Utah, 15 years old, laying out in the driveway. Her sister backs up and runs over her. And she's killed. Happened this week in Syracuse, Utah, 15-year-old girl. That's the kind of tragedy that no parent expects. True? No one got up that day and said, here's how the day is going to go. Our daughter's going to go out. She's going to lay out in the driveway, get a little sun, but her sister's going to run over. No one expects these things. And these kind of things can actually destroy and make people bitter and angry and suicidal and depression and everything else unless Jesus comes along. Amen? Some pain and trials, they're not sudden. They come and they last a long time. Some of you have been in long trials. Maybe you've been praying for a prodigal for years. Maybe you're dealing with a health issue that just has not gone away. And in fact, maybe it's worse now than it was even five years ago. Some things take years. They can discourage. They can frustrate. They can seemingly wear you completely out. It seems as if God allows some of these things to take us beyond our breaking point. But you know what? They're actually not beyond our breaking point because Jesus holds the breaking point. He says through Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation, or you can also say trial or difficulty, they all apply, has overtaken you, but such is common to man. All of us have them. There's no one that will avoid these difficulties. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted or tried or, or, uh, or beaten down beyond what you're able, but will with that temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. But it, the, the thing it says in that, it says, but God is able. He's the one. God is faithful. He's the faithful one that can see us through those things. Without God, yeah, we'd all throw in the towel. We'd all give up. None of us would ever sign up for the trials that we face. Would any of you go sign up for some of the things you've gone through? I wouldn't. I'm glad I've gone through them, but I don't think any of us would sign up for them. But they do make us much more dependent on Jesus, don't they? We're pretty self-reliant when things are going smooth. I don't need to read my Bible that much. Things are going great. I don't need to pray. I don't need to ask God for much help because everything's going well. But when you're faced like Jairus or this woman, things are different. You're pleading with God. You're begging with the Lord. Isaac Newton, he didn't just uh, do a lot of scientific things. He also was a follower of Christ. He said, trials are medicines which our gracious and wise physician prescribes because we need them. And he proportions the frequency and weight of them to what the case requires. Let us trust his skill and thank him for his prescription. We do need them, but they're still really hard, aren't they? We need them, but they're still hard. Andre Noonan said this. He said, our life, this is a great quote, 
He said our life is full of brokenness. Broken relationships, broken promises, broken expectations. How can we live with that brokenness without becoming bitter and resentful except by returning again and again to God's faithful presence in our lives? See, you can either run to God or you can run away from God. You can either come to Him for help or you can become bitter and refuse his help. And it's interesting, Jesus would ask the question sometimes, do you want to be healed? That seems like a crazy question. Who wouldn't want to be healed? But not everybody wants the Lord Jesus. And if you want his help, you have to believe his words. You have to be willing to say, whatever you do, master, I'll do it. I need you. Thankfully, some pain, we see these two individuals in pain. And this has happened millions of times over in the world. How many times has God used intense pain to actually bring people to salvation the first time? I mean, even before solving problems, just to bring people to salvation. We saw it just last week with the demoniac, right? tormented by thousands of demons, potentially up to 6,000 demons. We've looked at that, and Jesus used the fact, all the cutting, all the slicing, all the difficulty, all of the pain he was in to bring him to the place of salvation. I know, looking back when I got saved there in 1994 at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, God used a lot of things that actually had brought me to the place of needing God. Aren't you glad you were brought to the place that you realized you need Him? Right? You realized you need Him. We always need Him. See, God doesn't need us, and yet He loves us. We do need Him and don't really realize that we need Him a lot of times. But these pains, these things that we can't stop, the thief on the cross, he he realized... And his moment of desperation, he needed Jesus. He couldn't get himself off the cross, could he? And when he couldn't get himself off the cross, it had him understand that he actually deserved to be on the cross. And then he looked to Jesus, not to give him a tongue lashing like the other one, but to say, please help me. Because a lot of people, the problems they run into, instead of asking Jesus for help, they're mad and they say, I can't believe you'd allow this to happen. And just because of that, I'm not going to accept you just out of spite. That might make you feel good for a moment, but not for long. Because your own bitterness will destroy you anyway. And the second we would die in that condition, it definitely would be the worst of all responses. But thankfully, he uses pain to bring uh, people to the Lord. These two, Jairus and the woman... They show us exactly where we all need to be. That when we tried every other avenue, and preferably that we don't go try every other avenue, but we come to the only one who can actually help us with what we need, Jesus himself. All the other physicians can't help. All the other, both, these, both these individuals needed physicians. The sick, dying daughter, the woman with the issue of blood. But no physician could help except for the great physician. Let's look at this next point, personal faith. 
personal faith. Now, Jairus tells us in verse 41, he, uh, he fell down at the feet of Jesus and begged him to come to his house. See, Jairus is at that point of desperation where we need to be, where we fall at the feet of Jesus. And your daughter's life is enough to bring you to your knees. I have three daughters. Some of you have daughters, some of you have sons, some of you have both. But seeing even your kids sick is troubling enough. But knowing that they're very close to death, that's going to bring you to your knees. And he's desperate. And he begs Jesus to come to his house. And what does Jesus say? I don't have time for that. No, he says, yeah, I'll come. I'll come to your house. It's interesting that desperation is the doorway to relationship with the Lord. Desperation. Not the only doorway, but it's one of the major ones. Desperation, a doorway to believing in Jesus, to believing in his power, because you have nothing else to believe in after that, because everything else hasn't worked anyway. You know, my good friend Sam Nadler, who, is, uh, who was here just a few weeks ago, messianic Jewish pastor, church planner, Sam had tried almost every religion, including the religion of uh, 60s hippie drugs, before he realized that none of them worked. Why don't I give the Lord Jesus a try? And he's never been the same since. And many of you have a similar testimony, maybe not that many religions, but again, you tried so many things, but it's desperation that so often brings people to Jesus. But Jesus agrees. He says, yeah, I, I, I see your need. I'll come to your house. I'll come and help. And as he's walking, he's interrupted. This woman who has an uh, issue of blood in verse 43, Luke tells us a little bit of her background first, uh, that she couldn't be healed, and then she comes up behind Jesus. There's a huge crowd, and she, even with the big crowd, doesn't come to him from the front. Part of that, being out of respect, comes up from behind and just wants to touch a piece, just the hem. It, it may have been little tassels that, uh, that was requirement of the law hanging there, but just wants to touch just a hem of his garment. And he knows that someone's touched him, and he says, who touched me? Power's gone out of me. And he stops rather than he was stopped. Notice that this woman did not stop Jesus. She comes up behind and just touches a pin. Jesus stops. She doesn't stop him. He stops everything and everybody. The whole crowd is moving towards the house of Jairus with Jesus. He's walking and he feels the power go out. Now, Jesus not only feels the power go out, he knows that she's about to touch the hem of his garment in three, two, one, touch. Right? I'm going to be standing at this. He knows the GPS coordinate where this is going to happen. No one else knows this is going to happen. No one else knows, and he's already aware of her 12 issues, 12 years of issues, all of that stuff. He knows she's coming, and he's walking to Jairus' house, but no one else knows that he has someone else to help before he gets there. Let me pause there for a second. Do you and I stop and help people without being asked? She didn't say a word. 
She didn't say, please help me. No, there was no vote, verbal word spoken. There was no letter written. Almost all the people that outside these four walls in my life as a Christian that I've helped, very, very few, a tiny percent ever sent me an email and said, Dear Tim, come visit me at the prison. Dear Tim, come share the gospel with me. Dear Tim, come do this for me. No, no, people don't say they just live in their own private pain, misery, or lost condition, and we're told to go into all the world. This woman didn't tell anybody. She was quiet. She reached out. She thought she... But Jesus stopped everything. And he wants us to stop what we're doing and make time for these people that need the touch of the Lord. He said in Matthew chapter 25, verses 42 and 43, what a warning to all of us. He says, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Most of the people in that condition are not sending you an email. They can't anyway. They don't know who you are. You have to go to them. We have to send and help them. But we have to be willing to stop. Are we walking in the Spirit enough to see needs? See, Jesus also reveals something to us here that the Spirit realm knows the need even if it's not broadcast to the world. This, the, are we able to hear the Spirit speak to us, to say, I want you to speak to this person. I want you to help this person. I want you to encourage this person. George Mueller wrote thousands of letters in his lifetime. We can improve dramatically on just writing letters, emails, texts of encouragement to other brothers and sisters in Christ without being told to do it. No one's going to text you and say, but it does happen sometimes, but most of the time... The Spirit will put someone in your heart, and you will have to just say, hey, the Lord put you on my heart. Just wanted to encourage you. Just wanted to reach out. Is there anything I can do for you? Do you need any help? Listening to the Spirit, being able to hear that God wants us to be interrupted in many of our unimportant things to go do the important. Because this woman's situation is just as big a deal as Jairus's. This is an unusual interruption, because as I mentioned, nobody notices anything. Everyone else is like, what are you talking about? I mean, everyone's bumping into you. Everyone's, Peter's even like, you know, Peter's always the first one to speak. Peter's like, let me, uh, let me handle this, boys. I got it. Uh, Jesus, everyone's been touching you. Statement of the obvious. Thank you, Peter, for that great word of insight. No one else seemed to realize that everyone was touching Jesus. But Peter, doing what Peter does, making sure that everyone else understands the situation. Everyone's thro- pressing against him. But something else that Jesus calls attention to, because again, everyone else doesn't know her condition. She actually comes forward in verse 47. She's trembling. She's falling down and she declares in the presence of all the reason she touched him. Uh-oh. She's going to tell all the Jewish community, I've had a flow of blood and I reached out to touch him Well, technically, that would make Jesus unclean. But you can't make Jesus unclean. He only made her clean and whole. She's coming to say, 
At first, she was, she was trembling because she thought, I'm going to be condemned. They were calling Jesus teacher, rabbi. I'm going to be condemned. The ruler of the synagogue, who they didn't always bow to Jesus. Most often they did not bow to Jesus, bow to Jesus. So she's got a, a highly observable Jewish community. And for a while there, she didn't want to tell what she had done because she thought, I'm going to be condemned. But Jesus does not condemn her. He lets her know, you didn't make me unclean. I've just healed you. And you had enough faith to believe that even the hem of my garment could, some, could do something. And it did more than something. It did everything. She reached out. She was desperate enough to get close. Are we desperate enough to get close to Jesus? Are we pretty good right where we're at? The old lukewarm, yeah, I like the coffee just about this temperature. Or are we desperate enough to say, I need to be closer to the fire of God? Are we reaching up to the Lord? The work of faith, Jesus tells her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The work of faith and healing that God does and will do, what we see happen here is it becomes public. Everyone now knows what, what her former condition was. Everyone now knows what Jesus has just done for her. Our lives, even what Jesus has done in private, maybe you got saved in a hotel room, you read a Gideon's Bible, you dropped your knees and got saved, but eventually someday your private faith will have to be a public faith. Amen? why we get baptized. I was watching a little bit of Calvary Fort Lauderdale this morning. They just baptized 239 people, I think it was yesterday, in, uh, in the Atlantic Ocean. And when we got baptized down there, we did it at one of the area uh, state parks or local parks, T.Y. Park, I think it was. And uh, even if you're not baptized in front of a bunch of unsaved people, you're still baptized in front of the believers. Eventually, your private coming to the Lord be touched by Jesus, becomes a public thing. What he says here in verse 48, <clears throat> the word made you well, you know what it literally means? The literal translation is saved you. Your faith has brought salvation. Because we are saved by grace, are you saved? Not through works, right? But by faith. Now Jesus moves on to Jairus, let's take a few minutes here to kind of look at what takes place. Jesus touches this woman's life, does the miraculous in her life, but while he's still speaking, he's still talking to the, to the woman, and she, she begins to leave just cheerful. She cannot believe that 12... Can you imagine 12 years is finally over of an illness you thought would never, ever leave? I want to tell you, all of you, if you've got a health condition... It hasn't been healed yet, don't give up. Do not give up. God could heal you this week. Say, oh, that could never happen. Don't talk like that. And it, you talk like that, it won't happen. I'm not a name it, claim it, you know, that kind of uh, nonsense prosperity gospel, but I do believe there's a real problem when we don't pray big things to the Lord. We need to believe that God can do you, not, you don't necessarily need... I had a surgeon two years ago tell me, you're going to have to have this surgery. I might, but I might not. 
I have a God that's got more skills than you do. And he doesn't need a scalpel. And I'm really glad that he doesn't need a scalpel because it saves a lot of money and a lot of rehab time. Isn't that great? God wants to do more healing, but oftentimes we're not walking in any kind of faith or relationship with him, and we're not desperate for him. So instead, we just keep reaching for the medicine cabinet one time after another. Not to say that those things, I've used medicine, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we need to have a balance and learn to draw near and ask the elders of the church to pray over you. All these things are important. But while Jesus is still, while he's still talking, those that know Jairus come to him and say, "Um, you don't need to bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. You can slow down the procession. There's no need to get there. Uh, It's over. He didn't get there in time. You and I don't get places on time, but Jesus is always on time. Amen? I've not been always on time. I'll be the first to admit. But Jesus is always on time. And if he's late, he's intentional just to make the miracle that much greater. We know he was willing to come to Jairus' house, but he comes on, he says, anyway, he says to the people in verse 50, do not be afraid. Only believe she's going to be made well. What? She's dead. Don't be afraid. She's going to be made well. And so they continue going, and they end up at the house, and when they get there, everyone is mourning and wailing. In those days, they actually had paid mourners on top of the fact that the family was already mourning. So you had paid mourners that could mourn really loud and wail. They play instruments, and the, whole, the, the entire community would be part of the wailing. And Jesus puts everybody out of the house except for Peter, James, and John and the parents. I think there's something there for us too. Peter, James, and John were always close to Jesus. I believe that the, more, the closer we stay, the more we'll see the miraculous in our lives. Stay far away from the Lord, you won't see the miraculous that often. Stay close, Lord, you'll see it. And you'll not only be able to see it, you'll be able to testify yourself, not always someone else's testimony, but you'll have some of your own. But he puts everybody else out of the house. They ridic- many of the people there begin to ridicule him because uh, it says she's sleeping. It's not that she wasn't dead. She actually was dead. He was simply saying that in his economy... She's sleeping. In your economy, she's dead. In my economy, I can wake her up. In your economy, you can't wake her up. So he's speaking from his authoritative position that she's asleep because for me, it's an easy thing to raise any. For Jesus, it's an easy thing to raise anyone from the dead. He'll raise himself. They ridicule, but he comforts. And he says, do not weep. She's not dead. Comforts the parents. It's okay. I'm here now. Jairus, you asked me to come? I said I'd come. And if I say I'm going to come, I'm going to do business. I'm not just going to come and say, well, I'm sorry I'm late. I guess I missed out the opportunity to help your daughter. 
It's never too late, folks, with Jesus. I didn't invite this person. I should have invited them 10 years ago. Invite them this week. You're still alive. They're still alive. Jesus is always alive. So he says, look, she's, just, she's not dead. But he puts everybody outside, brings the, uh, goes inside himself, verse 54, takes everyone outside. Now he takes her by the hand. Little girl, arise. No medicine bag. No, nothing needed. The spoken word of the same one who spoke the universe into existence. Little girl, arise. His power is manifested. And look what he says next. After he raised her, then uh, her spirit returns, and he commands them to give her something to eat. Is Jesus not only powerful, but he is compassionate and practical? Give the girl something to eat. He knows even our small needs, doesn't he? Yeah, he knows you need something to eat today may not be exactly what you think you deserve or need, but something, give her something to eat. He's compassionate. Give the little girl something to re-strengthen her body. By the way, when Jesus, there's a discipleship principle here, when Jesus raises someone from the death of being unsaved into salvation, guess what the rest of us are supposed to do? Start to feed them. Guess what's not happening in the church all across America? Little girls, little boys in the faith are getting saved and no one's discipling them. Jesus said, go into all the world and do what? Make disciples, not just converts. When I raise them up out of the darkness, you then feed them. We told his disciples, go feed my sheep. Well, I got other important things to do. I got a, de- I got a, uh, I got a, uh, a day on the golf course, or I've got this, or I've got, uh, I've got big projects to work on. I don't have time to feed the people you just rose from the dead. Really? I just did this miracle, and you're not going to have the same compassion that I had? He's asking us all to feed those that he has raised. Coming to a close here with this personal joy in our last couple of minutes together personal joy. Both situations, the the, the reaction is not exactly the same, but I can guarantee you the joy is the same. If Jesus rose, raised from the dead, someone in your family that was dead, you'd have joy. (laughs) At least for a moment, right? If you for 12 years could not go certain places because of your health condition, and all of a sudden those limitations are gone, you'd have some joy. Amen? And God wants to do the miraculous, the life-changing in our life. Jesus told the woman he had healed, not only that her faith had made her whole, but he said, be of good cheer and go in peace now. I mean, you imagine unsettled her heart was for forever. I can't go to the temple. I can't see my family. I can't, I can't, I can't. Now I can because of him. 
That kind of joy is contagious. Imagine someone else saying, yeah, I've heard about this whole Jesus of Nazareth guy. I think he's a false prophet. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. This is what he did for me. This is our testimony of joy to a world that actually still mocks and ridicules the work of Christ. We have joy to say, look, do you think I'd be smiling like this if I didn't have Jesus? I was listening to, this week I was riding down the road. I was, you ever listen to Dr. David Jeremiah on the radio? He was talking about how he goes, he goes some Christians look like they were dipped in pickle juice. <laughs> said, you cannot see them crack a smile. Because when they enter the room, it's just doomsday for everybody. You and I should be filled with joy. When I see people that can't raise their hand and worship and they can't smile, I feel bad for them. Because the salvation that we've received and what God has already done should make us fill with joy. Now, we still weep and mourn for our persecuted brothers and the lost, but there's a time to weep and there's also a time to smile. And most of the time, we want to be walking with the joy to say, God has done great things for me. He cheers her up. He comforts her. She leaves with cheer. Um, how could you not rejoice when Jesus has done the miraculous for you and me? The word astonished in the, in the case of the parents of um, the little girl, Jairus and his, and his wife in verse 56, it says, and her parents were astonished. That word, um, existeme, and the Greek here means amazed or wonderment. You and I need to remember and think of all the wonderful and amazing things that God has done for us. The enemy wants us to forget all those things. The enemy wants to for you to forget that God saved your marriage X amount of years ago, that God saved your soul, which was by far the greatest, that he actually saved your child a long time ago from something or uh, what he's done, many things that God wants you to remember as memorials to his greatness in your life, and Satan wants you to forget them all and remember that you have a migraine today. So God doesn't really care. That's what the enemy, he'll always want to remind of the misery where God says, no, look at the victories. You live in a fallen world. There's going to be, Jesus said, there, you're going to have tribulation in this world. Be of, you know, be of good, what? Cheer. I've overcome the world. Remember that your salvation is far greater. Anything else pales in comparison to what God has done. We were, I'm going to flip to it real quick. We were in our men's study on Thursday night, the bottom rower study, uh, and we were reading from Titus, and I just want to reread what we were going through as the men to all of you. Because Paul reminds Titus to remind the church. Now, I'm a pastor. Titus was a pastor. Paul said, remind the church when they are down in the dumpers what God has already done for them. Not what they need done or what he will do, but what he's already done because Paul says, remind them. In verse 3, Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3. Listen to what Paul says. This is who we once were, by the way. It's a wonderful list. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. We were a wonderful group to be around. But when the kindness 
and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says, Titus, remind them that they were in horrible darkness. They were hating one another, malice, pleasure, lust, wickedness. They were on their way to hell. But when the kindness of Jesus arrived, just like it did to Jairus, just like it did to this woman, everything changed. And if you and I ever take for granted our day in salvation, we're going to take for granted every other thing God's done too. Amen? It starts with that. We need to remember and think of the wonderful things that God has done for us, starting with our salvation. When Jesus does the miraculous for us, when we remember our salvation, we won't be the Debbie Downer. We won't be the wet blanket. We won't be the one always moaning and complaining. We'll be the one saying, thank you for what the Lord has done. We'll marvel at God's power. We'll pray towards his power. We'll believe in it. We'll have genuine joy. John said it in 1 John 1, 4, and these things we write to you that your what? Joy might be eh, full. Her joy might be full. What God has done should bring peace and joy. And we must remember and focus on what he's done and we'll believe that he'll do what needs to be done and only he can do. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that you do reward even a mustard seed of faith. You didn't tell us that we should have uh, the faith that you have, but Lord, just a mustard seed to take and reach out and press in and believe, Lord, that you can do. I pray even this morning, Father, there are those that have physical ailments that you would touch and heal their bodies. From head to toe, Lord, that you would heal even in this place. Lord, marriages that need to be healed, souls that need to be saved. Lord, we know that you can do the miraculous. And we would be those that would believe, that we would only believe. Lord, our disbelief is so problematic. It hinders growth. Our disbelief causes us, Lord, to become seekers of our own pleasure rather than seekers of God. And Lord, we pray that you would help and rid us of the sin of disbelief, that we would believe in your greatness, in your love, and your power, your authority over all things. And Lord, that it would give us joy and amazement at what you've done and believing that you are going to do far beyond what we've already seen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.